This is chapter 28, The Evolution and Distribution of Galaxies. This chapter has five sections. They are 28.1, Observations of Distant Galaxies, 28.2, Galaxy Mergers and Active Galactic Nuclei, 28.3, The Distribution of Galaxies in Space, 28.4, The Challenge of Dark Matter, and 28.5, The Formation and Evolution of Galaxies and Structure in the Universe. The opening figure shows colliding galaxies, and the caption reads, Collisions and mergers of galaxies strongly influence their evolution. On the left is a ground-based image of two colliding galaxies, sometimes nicknamed the antenna galaxies. The long, luminous tails are material torn out of the galaxies by tidal forces during the collision. The right image shows the inner regions of these two galaxies as taken by the Hubble Space Telescope. The cores of the twin galaxies are the orange blobs to the lower left and upper right of the center of the image. Note the dark lanes of dust crossing in front of the bright regions. The bright pink and blue star clusters are the result of a burst of star formation stimulated by the collision. How and when did galaxies like our Milky Way form? Which formed first, stars or galaxies? Can we see direct evidence of the galaxy changes under... <laughs> How and when did galaxies like our Milky Way form? Which formed first, stars or galaxies? Can we see direct evidence of the changes galaxies undergo over their lifetimes? If so, what determines whether a galaxy will grow up to be a spiral or elliptical galaxy? And what's the role of nature versus nurture? That's to say, how much of a galaxy's development is determined by what it looks like when it was born and how much it is influenced by its environment? Astronomers today have the tools needed to explore the universe almost back to the time it began. The huge new telescopes and sensitive detectors built in the last decades make it possible to obtain both images and spectra of galaxies so distant that their light has traveled to reach us for more than 13 billion years, more than 90% of the way back to the Big Bang. We can use the finite speed of light and the vast size of the universe as a cosmic time machine to peer back and observe how galaxies formed and evolved over time. Studying galaxies so far away in any detail is always a major challenge, largely because their distance makes them appear very faint. However, today's large telescopes on the ground and in space are finally making such a task possible. This is section 28.1 observations of distant galaxies. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do three things. One, explain how astronomers use light from distant galaxies to learn about galaxies long ago. Two, discuss the evidence showing that the first stars formed when the universe was less than 10% of its current age. And three, describe the major differences observed between galaxies seen in the distant early universe and galaxies seen in the nearby, more recent universe. Let's begin by exploring some techniques astronomers use to study how galaxies are born and change over cosmic time. Suppose you wanted to understand how adult humans got, the way, got to be the way they are. If you were very dedicated and patient, you could actually observe a sample of babies from birth, following them through childhood, adolescence, and into adulthood, and making basic measurements such as their heights, weights, and the proportional sizes of different parts of their bodies to understand how they change over time. 
Unfortunately, we have no such possibility for understanding how galaxies grow and change over time. <laughs> in a human lifetime, or even over the entire history of human civilization, individual galaxies change hardly at all. We need other tools than just patiently observing single galaxies in order to study and understand those long, slow changes. We do, however, have one remarkable asset in studying galactic evolution. As we've seen, the universe itself is a kind of time machine that permits us to observe remote galaxies as they were long ago. For the closest galaxies, like the Andromeda galaxy, the time light takes to reach us is on the order of a few hundred thousand to a few million years. Typically, not much changes over time set short. Individual stars in the galaxy may be born or die, but the overall structure and appearance of the galaxy will remain the same. But we have observed galaxies so far away that we're seeing them as they were when the light left them more than 10 billion years ago. By observing more distant objects, we look further back toward a time when both galaxies and the universe were young. For something similar to Earth, imagine your college doing a project where families of international students around the world are asked to send daily newspapers from their hometown. Because there is a limited budget, the papers are sent through ordinary mail. The farther a town is from the United States, the longer it takes for the papers to get to college, and the older the news is by the time it arrives. That's a pretty good example. But if we can't directly detect the changes over time in individual galaxies because they happen too slowly, how can we ever understand those changes and the origins of galaxies? Well, the solution is to observe many galaxies at many different cosmic distances and therefore many different look-back times. A look-back time is just how far back in time we're seeing the galaxy. If we can study a thousand very distant baby galaxies when the universe was one billion years old, and another thousand slightly closer toddler galaxies when it was two billion years old, and so on, until the present 13.8 billion year old universe of mature adult galaxies near us today, then maybe we can piece together a coherent picture of how the whole ensemble of galaxies evolves over time. This allows us to reconstruct the life story of galaxies since the universe began, even though we can't follow a single galaxy from infancy to old age. And fortunately for us, there is no shortage of galaxies to study. Ready for a fun fact? Hold up your pinky at arm's length so that your pinky covers a portion of the sky. That part of the sky, blocked by your fingernail alone, contains about one million galaxies, layered farther and farther back in space and time. In fact, the sky is filled with galaxies, but we can't see them with our naked eye, at least not most of them. And there are more than two trillion galaxies in the observable universe. Each one has about a hundred billion stars. This cosmic time machine lets us peer into the past to answer fundamental questions about where galaxies come from and how they got to be the way they are today. Astronomers call galactic changes over cosmic time evolution, a word that recalls the work of Darwin and others on the development of life on Earth. But note that galaxy evolution refers to the changes in individual galaxies over time, while the kind of evolution biologists study is changes in successive generations of living organisms over time. Let's consider what some properties of galaxies tell us about those galaxies. We're going to look at the spectra, the colors, and the shapes.
Astronomy is one of the few sciences in which all measurements must be made at a distance. Geologists can take samples of the objects they're studying. Chemists can conduct experiments in their laboratories to determine what a substance is made of. And archaeologists can use carbon dating to determine how old something is. <laughs> but, astro but astronomers can't pick up and play with a star or a galaxy. As we've seen throughout this book, if they want to know what galaxies are made of and how they have changed over time, they've got to decode the messages carried by a small number of photons of light that reach Earth. Fortunately, electromagnetic radiation is a rich source of information. The distance to a galaxy is derived from its redshift, that is, how much the lines in its spectrum are shifted towards the red because of the expansion of the universe. The conversion of the redshift to a distance, though, depends on certain properties of the universe, including the value of the Hubble constant and how much mass is contained in the universe. We'll describe the currently accepted model of the universe in a later chapter. For purposes of this chapter, it's enough to know that the current best estimate for the age of the universe is 13.8 billion years. So if we see an object that emitted its light 6 billion years ago, we're seeing it as it was when the universe was almost 8 billion years old. If we see something that emitted its light 13 billion years ago, we're seeing it as it was when the universe was less than a billion years old. So astronomers measure a galaxy's redshift from its spectrum, use the Hubble constant plus a model of the universe to turn the redshift into distance, and use this distance and the constant speed of light to infer how, bar, how far back in time they're seeing the galaxy, the look-back time. In addition to distance and look-back time, studies of the Doppler shifts of a galaxy's spectral lines can tell us how fast the galaxy is rotating, and hence how massive it is. Detailed analysis of such lines can also indicate types of stars that inhabit a galaxy and whether it contains large amounts of interstellar matter. Unfortunately, many galaxies are so faint that collecting enough light to produce a detailed spectrum is currently not possible. Astronomers thus have to use their colors, a much rougher guide, to estimate what kinds of stars inhabit the faintest galaxies. Some of the galaxies we see are very blue, and others are reddish-orange. Remember that hot, luminous blue stars are very massive and have lifetimes of only a few million years. If we see a galaxy where blue colors dominate, we know that it must have many hot, luminous blue stars, and that star formation must have taken place in the few million years before the light left the galaxy. In a yellow or red galaxy, on the other hand, the young, luminous blue stars that surely were made in the galaxy's early bursts of star formation must have died already. It must contain mostly old yellow and red stars that last a long time in their main sequence stages and thus typically formed billions of years before the light that we now see was emitted. You're probably wondering, aren't all of the galaxies we see far away red? And the answer is not quite. In any case, we can account for the red shift. We can actually subtract that out to determine the true color of the galaxies that we see. So we can use redshift, we can use color, and another important clue to the nature of a galaxy is its shape. Spiral galaxies can be distinguished from elliptical galaxies by shape. Observations show that spiral galaxies contain young stars and large amounts of interstellar matter, while elliptical galaxies have mostly old stars and very little or no star formation. Elliptical galaxies turned most of their interstellar matter into stars many billions of years ago. 
whilst our formation has continued until the present day in spiral galaxies. If we can count the number of galaxies of each type during each epoch of the universe, it will help us understand how the rate of star formation changes with time. As we'll see later in this chapter, galaxies in the distant universe, that is, young galaxies, look very different from the older galaxies that we see nearby in the present-day universe. The first generation of stars. In addition to looking at the most distant galaxies we can find, astronomers look at the oldest stars, what we might call the fossil record of our own galaxy, to probe what happened in the early universe. Since stars are the source of nearly all the light emitted by galaxies, we can learn a lot about the evolution of galaxies by studying the stars within them. What we find is that nearly all galaxies contain at least some very old stars. For example, our own galaxy contains globular clusters with stars that are at least 13 billion years old, and some may even be older than that. Therefore, if we count the age of the Milky Way as the age of its oldest constituents, the Milky Way must have been born at least 13 billion years ago. As we discuss in a later chapter, astronomers have discovered that the universe is expanding and have traced this expansion backward in time. In this way, they have discovered that the universe itself is only about 13.8 billion years old. Thus, it appears that at least some of the globular cluster stars in the Milky Way must have formed less than a billion years after the expansion began. Several other observations also establish that star formation in the cosmos began very early. Astronomers have used spectra to determine the composition of some elliptical galaxies that are so far away that the light we see them left when the universe was only half as old as it is now. Yet these ellipticals contain even older features. They contain old red stars, which must have formed billions of years earlier still. When we make computer models of how such galaxies evolve with time, they tell us that star formation in ellipticals began less than a billion years or so after the universe started its expansion, and the new stars continued to form for a few billion years. But then, star formation apparently stopped. When we compare distant elliptical galaxies with ones nearby, we find that ellipticals have not changed very much since the universe reached about half its current age. We'll return to this idea later in this chapter. Observations of the most luminous galaxies take us even further back in time. Remember, as we've already noted, astronomers have discovered a few galaxies that are so far away that the light we see now left them less than a billion years or so after the beginning. Yet the spectra of some of these galaxies already contain lines of heavy elements, including carbon, silicon, aluminum, and sulfur. These elements were not present when the universe began, but had to be manufactured in the interiors of stars. This means that when the light from these galaxies was emitted, an entire generation of stars had already been born, lived out their lives, and died, spewing out the new elements made in their interiors through supernova explosions, even before the universe was a billion years old. And it wasn't just a few stars in each galaxy that got started this way. Enough had to live and die to affect the overall composition of the galaxy in a way that we can still measure from the spectrum far away. Observations of quasars support this conclusion. We can measure the abundances of heavy elements in the gas near quasar black holes. The composition of this gas in quasars that emitted their light 12.5 billion years ago is very similar to the sun, and that means that a large portion of the gas surrounding the black holes must have already been cycled through stars during the first 1.3 billion years after the expansion of the universe began. 
If we allow time for this cycling, then their first stars must have formed when the universe was only a few hundred million years old. Wow! <laughs> so we live in a changing universe of galaxies. Back in the middle decades of the 20th century, the observations that all galaxies contain some old stars led astronomers to the hypothesis that galaxies were born fully formed near the time when the universe began its expansion. This hypothesis was similar to suggesting that human beings were born as adults and did not have to pass through the various stages of development from infancy through the teens and into adulthood. If this hypothesis were correct, the most distant galaxies should have shapes and sizes very much like the galaxies we see nearby. According to this old view, galaxies after they formed should then change only slowly as successive generations of stars within them formed, evolved, and died. As the interstellar matter was slowly used up and fewer new stars were formed, the galaxies would gradually become dominated by fainter, older stars and look dimmer and dimmer. Thanks to the new generation of large ground and space-based telescopes, we now know that this picture of galaxies evolving peacefully in isolation from one another is completely wrong. As we'll see later in this chapter, galaxies in the distant universe do not look like the Milky Way or nearby galaxies such as Andromeda. And their story of development is more complex and involves more interaction with their neighbors. Far more interaction. Why were astronomers so wrong? Up until the early 1990s, the most distant normal galaxy that had been observed emitted its light 8 billion years ago. Since that time, many galaxies, and particularly the giant ellipticals, which are the most luminous and therefore the easiest to see at large distances, did evolve peacefully and slowly. But the Hubble, Spitzer, Herschel, Keck, and other powerful new telescopes that have come online since the 1990s make it possible to pierce the 8 billion light year barrier. We now have detailed views of many thousands of galaxies that emitted their light much earlier, some more than 13 billion years ago. Isn't it amazing what we can learn in 30 years? I don't know about you, but I'm really excited for the 30 years to come. Some of the things that we think we know will probably change, and some of the things that we don't know will probably gain a little more insight. And I'll just add, if you want to be an astronomer or a cosmologist, there's plenty of room for you, and you have plenty of time to get there. Back to the reading. Much of the recent work on the evolution of galaxies has progressed by studying a few specific small regions of sky where the Hubble, Spitzer, and ground-based telescopes have taken extremely long exposure images to collect more light. This allowed astronomers to detect very faint, very distant, and therefore very young galaxies. Our deep space telescope images show some galaxies that are a hundred times fainter than the faintest objects that can be observed spectroscopically with today's giant ground-based telescopes. As it turns out, we can obtain the spectra needed to determine redshifts for only the very brightest 5% of the galaxies in these images. Although we don't have spectra for the most faint galaxies, the Hubble Space Telescope is especially well-suited to studying their shapes because the images taken in space are not blurred by Earth's atmosphere. To the surprise of astronomers, the distant galaxies did not fit Hubble's classification scheme at all. <laughs> Remember that Hubble found that nearly all nearby galaxies could be classified into a few categories, depending on whether they were ellipticals or spirals or something really similar. The distant galaxies observed by the Hubble Space Telescope look very different from present-day galaxies, without identifiable spiral arms, disks, or bulges. 
they also tend to be much clumpier than most galaxies today. In other words, it's becoming clear that the shapes of galaxies have changed significantly over time. In fact, we now know that the Hubble scheme works well for only the last half of the age of the universe, and before then, galaxies were much more chaotic. And it's not just the shapes that are different. Nearly all the galaxies with redshifts that correspond to 11 billion light years or more, that is, galaxies that we're seeing when they were less than 3 billion years old, are extremely blue, indicating that they contain a lot of young stars and that star formation in them is occurring at a higher rate than in nearby galaxies. Observations also show that very distant galaxies are systematically smaller on average than nearby galaxies. Observations also show that very distant galaxies are systematically smaller on average than nearby galaxies. Relatively few galaxies present before the universe was about 8 billion years old have masses greater than 100 billion times the mass of the Sun. That's 5% of the mass of the Milky Way if we include its dark matter halo. 11 billion years ago, there were only a few galaxies with masses greater than 10 billion times the mass of the Sun. The things that we do see seem to be small pieces or fragments of galactic material. And when we look at galaxies that emitted their light 11 to 12 billion years ago, we now believe that we are seeing seeds of elliptical galaxies and of the central bulges of spirals. We also believe that over time, these smaller galaxies collided and merged to build up today's large galaxies. Bear in mind that stars that formed more than 11 billion years ago will be very old stars today. Indeed, when we look nearby at galaxies we see closer to our present day, we find mostly old stars in the nuclear bulges of nearby spirals and in elliptical galaxies. These observations show us that galaxies have grown in size as the universe has changed. And not only were galaxies smaller several billion years ago, but there were more of them. Gas-rich galaxies, particularly the less luminous ones, were much more numerous then than they are today. Those are some of the basic observations we can make of individual galaxies and their evolution by looking back in cosmic time. Now, we want to turn our attention to the larger context. If stars are grouped into galaxies, are galaxies also grouped in some way? In the third section of this chapter, we'll explore the largest structures of the known universe. This is exciting. This is section 28.2, Galaxy Mergers and Active Galactic Nuclei. By the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. One, explain how galaxies grow by merging with other galaxies and by consuming smaller galaxies for lunch. <laughs> and two, describe the effects that supermassive black holes in the centers of most galaxies have on the fate of their host galaxies. One of the conclusions astronomers have reached from studying distant galaxies is that collisions and mergers of whole galaxies play a crucial role in determining how galaxies acquired the shapes and sizes we see today. Only a few of the nearby galaxies are currently involved in collisions, but detailed studies of those tell us what to look for when we seek evidence of mergers in very distant and very faint galaxies. These in turn give us important clues about the different evolutionary paths galaxies have taken over cosmic time. Let's examine in more detail what happens when two galaxies collide. Mergers and cannibalism. The opening figure for this text shows a dynamic view of two galaxies that are colliding. 
the stars themselves in this pair of galaxies will not be affected much by this cataclysmic event. Since there is a lot of space between stars, a direct collision between two stars is very unlikely. However, the orbits of many stars will be changed as the two galaxies move through each other, and the change in orbits can totally alter the appearance of the interacting galaxies. Figure 28.7 shows a gallery of interacting galaxies, and it's worth taking a look at. I'll read the caption. M82 and M83 are seen A in a black and white visible light image and B in radio waves given off by cold hydrogen gas. The hydrogen image shows that the two galaxies are wrapped in a common shroud of gas that is being tugged and stretched by the gravity of these two galaxies. C, this close-up view by the Hubble Space Telescope, shows some of the effects of this interaction on galaxy M82, including gas streaming outward in red tendrils powered by supernovae explosions of massive stars that formed in the burst of star formation that was a result of the collision. Galaxy UGC 10214, also called the Tadpole, <laughs> is a barred spiral galaxy 420 million light years away from the Milky Way that has been disrupted by the passage of a smaller galaxy. The interloper's gravity pulled out the long tidal tail, which is about 280,000 light years long, and triggered bursts of star formation as seen as blue clumps along the tail. E. Galaxies NGC 4676A and B are nicknamed the mice. In this Hubble Space Telescope image, you can see the long, narrow tails of stars pulled away from the galaxies by the interactions of the two spirals. F. ARP 148 is a pair of galaxies that are caught in the act of merging to become one new galaxy. The two appear to have already passed through each other once causing a shock wave that reformed one into a bright blue ring of star formation, like the ripples from a stone tossed into a pond. Just to note, there's a whole catalog of peculiar galaxies that start with the name ARP. They're named after a famous astronomer, Halton ARP. Halton ARP was the father of a marine biologist that works at SOU, Alyssa ARP. She is wonderful, and if you can ever take a class with her, please do. As it turns out, great rings, huge tendrils of stars and gas, and other complex structures can form in cosmic collisions. And indeed, these strange shapes are the signposts that astronomers use to identify colliding galaxies. We've reached an astronomy basics box titled, Why Galaxies Collide But Stars Rarely Do. Throughout this book, we have emphasized the large distances between objects in space. You might therefore have been surprised to hear about collisions between whole galaxies. Yet, except at the very cores of galaxies, we haven't worried at all about the stars inside a galaxy colliding with each other. The reason is that stars are ridiculously small when compared to the distances between stars. Let's use our sun as an example. The sun is about 1.4 million kilometers wide, but it's separated from the closest other star by about four light years. That's about 38 trillion kilometers. In other words, the sun is 27 million of its own diameters from its nearest neighbor. Here's a fact to wow all of your friends. If the sun were a grapefruit in New York City, the nearest star would be another grapefruit in San Francisco. <laughs> this is typical of stars that are not in the nuclear bulge of a galaxy, which is more densely packed with stars or inside star clusters. Let's contrast this with the separation of galaxies. The visible disk of the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years in diameter, 
we have three satellite galaxies that are just one or two Milky Way diameters away from us and will probably someday collide with us. The closest major spiral is the Andromeda Galaxy, also called M31, which is about 2.4 million light years away. If the Milky Way were pancake <laughs> at one end of a big breakfast table, M31 would be another pancake at the other end of the same table. Our nearest large galaxy neighbor is only 24 of our galaxy's diameters away from us, and it will soon begin to crash in the Milky Way <laughs> in about 4.5 billion years. Galaxies rich in clusters are even closer together than those in our neighborhood. Thus, the chances of galaxies colliding are far greater than the chances of stars in the disk of a galaxy colliding. And we should note that the difference between the separation of galaxies and stars also means that when galaxies do collide, their stars almost always pass right by each other like smoke passing through a screen door. The details of galaxy collisions are complex and the process can take hundreds of millions of years. Thus, collisions are best simulated on a computer, where astronomers can control how quickly time elapses, and they can calculate the interactions of stars and clouds of gas and dust through gravity. The calculations show that if the collision in real time occurs slowly, the colliding galaxies can actually coalesce to form a single galaxy. You're going to like this. When two galaxies of equal size are involved in a collision, we call the interaction a merger. But when small galaxies are swallowed by larger ones, we call it galactic cannibalism. The very large elliptical galaxies we discussed earlier probably formed by cannibalizing a variety of smaller galaxies in their clusters. These monster galaxies frequently possess more than one nucleus and have probably acquired their unusually high luminosities by swallowing nearby galaxies. The multiple nuclei are remnants of their victims. Many of the large, peculiar galaxies that we observe also owe their chaotic shapes to past interactions. Slow collisions and mergers can even transform two or more spiral galaxies into a single elliptical galaxy. A change in shape is not all that happens when galaxies collide. If either galaxy contains interstellar matter, the collision can compress the gas and trigger an increase in the rate at which stars are being formed by as much as a factor of 100. Astronomers call this abrupt increase in the number of stars being formed a starburst, and the galaxies in which the increase occurs are termed starburst galaxies. In some interacting galaxies, star formation is so intense that all the available gas is exhausted in only a few million years. The burst of star formation is clearly only temporary. While a star burst is going on, however, the galaxy where it is taking place becomes much brighter and much easier to detect at large images. When astronomers finally had the tools to examine a significant number of galaxies that emitted their light 11 to 12 billion years ago, they found that these very young galaxies often resemble nearby starburst galaxies that are involved in mergers. They also have multiple nuclei and peculiar shapes. They are unusually clumpier than normal galaxies today, with multiple intense knots and lumps of bright starlight, and they have higher rates of star formation than isolated galaxies. They also contain lots of blue, young, type O, and B stars, as do nearby merging galaxies. Galaxy mergers in today's universe are rare. Only about 5% of nearby galaxies are currently involved in interactions. Interactions are, were much more common billions of years ago and helped build up the more mature galaxies that we see in our time. 
Clearly, interactions of galaxies have played a crucial role in their evolution. Now let's turn our attention to those active galactic nuclei. While galaxy mergers are huge, splashy events that completely reshape entire galaxies on scales of hundreds to thousands of light years and can spark massive bursts of star formation, accreting black holes inside galaxies can also disturb and alter the evolution of their host galaxies. If you remember, we learned about a family of objects known as active galactic nuclei, abbreviated AGN. All of these are powered by supermassive black holes. If the black hole is surrounded by enough gas, some of the gas can fall into the black hole, getting swept up on the way into an accretion disk, a compact swirling maelstrom, perhaps only 100 AU across. That's about the size of our solar system. Within the disk, the gas heats up until it shines brilliantly, even in X-rays, and often outshining the rest of the host galaxy with its billions of stars. Supermassive black holes and their accretion disks can be violent in powerful places, with some material getting sucked into the black hole, but even more getting shot out along the huge jets perpendicular to the disk. These powerful jets can extend far outside the starry edge of the galaxy. AGN were much more common in the early universe, in part because frequent mergers provided a fresh gas supply for the black hole accretion disks. Examples of AGN in the nearby universe today include the one in galaxy M87, which sports a jet of material shooting out from its nucleus at speeds close to the speed of light, and the one in the bright galaxy NGC 5128, which is also known as Centaurus A. I encourage you to Google Galaxy Centaurus A. It is amazing to see. Many highly accelerated particles move with the jets in such galaxies. Along the way, the particles in the jets can plow into gas clouds in the interstellar medium, breaking them apart and scattering them. Since denser clouds of gas and dust are required for material to clump together to make stars, this disruption of the clouds can halt star formation in the host galaxy, or cut it off even before it begins. In this way, quasars and other kinds of AGN can play a crucial role in the evolution of their galaxies. For example, there is growing evidence that the merger of two gas-rich galaxies not only produces a huge burst of star formation, but also triggers AGN activity in the core of the new galaxy. That activity, in turn, could then slow down or shut off the burst of star formation, which could have significant implications for the apparent shape, brightness, chemical content, and stellar components of the entire galaxy. Astronomers refer to this process as AGN feedback, and it's apparently an important factor in the evolution of most galaxies. This is section 28.3, the distribution of galaxies in space. And by the end of the section, you should be able to do five things. One, explain the cosmological principle. And two, summarize the evidence we have that the cosmological principle applies on the largest scales of the known universe. Three, describe the contents of the local group of galaxies. Four, distinguish among groups, clusters, and superclusters of galaxies. And five, describe the largest structures seen in the universe, including voids. In the previous section, we emphasized the role of mergers in shaping the evolution of galaxies. In order to collide, galaxies must be fairly close together. 
To estimate how often collisions occur and how often they affect galaxy evolution, astronomers need to know how galaxies are distributed in space and over cosmic time. Are most of them isolated from one another or do they congregate in groups? If they congregate, how large are the groups and how and when do they form? And how, in general, are galaxies and their groups arranged in the cosmos? Are there as many in one direction of the sky as in any other, for example? How did galaxies get to be arranged the way we find them today? Edwin Hubble found answers to some of these questions only a few years after he first showed that spiral nebulae were galaxies and not part of our Milky Way. As he examined galaxies all over the sky, Hubble made two discoveries that turned out to be crucial for studies of the evolution of the universe. Before we continue talking about the contributions that Hubble made that furthered our understanding of cosmology, <laughs> I have a joke for you. So turkeys on Earth, they say gobble gobble, right? So what do turkeys in space say? Turkeys in space, they say a hubble hubble. <laughs> Okay, let's continue on. The cosmological principle. Hubble made his observations. I bet you'll never hear that word again without thinking about a turkey. <laughs> Hubble made his observations with what were then the world's largest telescopes, the 100-inch and the 60-inch reflectors on Mount Wilson. These telescopes have small fields of view. They can see only a small part of the heavens at a time. To photograph the entire sky with the 100-inch telescope, it would have taken longer than a human lifetime. So <laughs> instead, Hubble sampled the sky in many small regions, much like Herschel did with his stargazing. In the 1930s, Hubble photographed 1,283 sample areas, and on each print, he carefully counted the numbers of galaxy images. The first discovery Hubble made from his survey was that the number of galaxies visible in each area of the sky is about the same. Strictly speaking, this is only true if the light from distant galaxies is not absorbed by dust in our own galaxy. But Hubble made corrections for this absorption. He also found that the numbers of galaxies increase with faintness, as we would expect if the density of galaxies is about the same at all distances from us. To understand what we mean, imagine that you're taking snapshots in a crowded stadium during a sold-out concert. The people sitting near you look big, so only a few of them will fit into the photo. But if you focus on people sitting in seats way on the other side of the stadium, they look so small that many more will fit into your picture. If all the parts of the stadium have the same seats arrangements, then as you look further and further away, your photo will get more and more crowded with people. In the same way, as Hubble looked at fainter and fainter galaxies, he saw more of them. Hubble's findings are enormously important, for they indicate that the universe is both isotropic and homogeneous. It looks the same in all directions. That's the definition of isotropic. And a large volume of space at any given redshift or distance is much like any other volume in that redshift. That's homogeneous. If the universe is indeed both isotropic and homogeneous, it doesn't matter what section of the universe we look at, as long as it's a sizable portion. Any section will look the same as any other. Hubble's results, and many more that have followed in the nearly hundred years since then, imply not only that the universe is about the same everywhere, apart from changes with time, but also that aside from a small-scale local difference here and there, the part we can see around us is representative of the whole. 
The idea that the universe is the same everywhere is called the cosmological principle and is the starting assumption for nearly all theories that describe the entire universe. Without the cosmological principle, we can make no progress at all in studying the universe. Suppose our own local neighborhood <laughs> were unusual in some way. Then we could no more understand what the universe is like than if we were marooned on a warm South Sea island without outside communication and were trying to understand the geography of Earth. From our limited island point of view, we could not know that some parts of the planet were covered with snow and ice, or that large continents exist with much greater variety of terrain than that found on our island. Hubble merely counted the numbers of galaxies in various directions without knowing how far away most of them were. With the modern instruments we have, astronomers have measured the velocities and distances of hundreds of thousands of galaxies, and so built up a meaningful picture of the large-scale structure of the universe. In the rest of this section, we describe what we know about the distribution of galaxies, beginning with those that are nearby. And that leads us to the local group. The region of the universe for which we have the most detailed information is, as you expect, our own local neighborhood. It turns out that the Milky Way is a member of a small group of galaxies called, <laughs> not too imaginatively, the local group. It's spread over about 3 million light years and contains 60 or so members. There are three large spiral galaxies, our own, the Andromeda Galaxy, and M33, two intermediate ellipticals, and many dwarf ellipticals and irregular galaxies. It might be surprising to learn that new members of the local group are still being discovered. If you remember, there's a dwarf galaxy that we discovered in 1994 that's only 80,000 light years from Earth and about 50,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. It's in the constellation of Sagittarius, and eventually we're going to eat it. <laughs> Many of the recent discoveries have been made possible by the new generation of automated, sensitive, wide-field surveys, such as the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, that map the positions of millions of stars across most of the visible sky. By digging into the data, with sophisticated computer programs, astronomers have turned up numerous tiny faint dwarf galaxies that were all but invisible to the eye, even in those deep telescopic images. These new findings may help solve a long-standing problem. The prevailing theories of how galaxies form predicted that there should be more dwarf galaxies around big galaxies like the Milky Way than had previously been observed. And only now do we have the tools to find these faint and tiny galaxies and begin to compare them with the numbers from theoretical predictions. There is a link to Learning Box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the links in the box. It says, you can read more about the Sloan survey and its dramatic results, and check out this brief animation of a flight through the arrangement of galaxies as revealed by the survey. Several new dwarf galaxies have also been found near the Andromeda galaxy. Such dwarf galaxies are difficult to find because they typically contain relatively few stars and it's hard to distinguish them from the foreground stars in our own Milky Way. There's a figure in the text, figure 2814, and it shows a rough sketch showing where the brighter members of the local group are located. The average motions of all the galaxies in the local group indicates that its total mass is about 4 trillion times the mass of the Sun, and at least half of this mass is contained in the two giant spirals, the Andromeda Galaxy and the Milky Way Galaxy. Bear in mind that a substantial amount of the mass in the local group is in the form of dark matter. 
So now when people ask you where the Milky Way lives, you can say it lives in the local group. <laughs> Let's see if we're part of something bigger. Neighboring groups and clusters. Small galaxy groups like ours are hard to notice at large distances. However, there are much more substantial groups called galaxy clusters that are easier to spot even many millions of light years away. Such clusters are described as poor or rich, depending on how many galaxies they contain. Rich clusters, as you might imagine, have thousands or even tens of thousands of galaxies, although many of the galaxies are quite faint and hard to detect. The nearest moderately rich galaxy cluster is called the Virgo Cluster after the constellation in which it is seen. It's about 50 million light years away and contains thousands of members, including the giant elliptical and very active galaxy M87. A good example of a cluster that's much larger than the Virgo Cluster is the Coma Cluster, which has a diameter of at least 10 million light years. It's a little over 300 million light years away, and it's centered on two giant ellipticals whose luminosities each equal about 400 billion times the luminosity of our sun. Thousands of galaxies have been observed in the Coma Cluster, but the galaxies we see are most certainly only part of what is really there. Dwarf galaxies are too faint to be seen at that distance, but we expect that they are part of this cluster just as they are part of the nearer ones. If so, then Coma likely contains tens of thousands of galaxies. Oh my gosh, the total mass of this cluster is about 4 million billion times the mass of our sun. <laughs> Let's pause here for a moment of perspective. We are now discussing numbers by which even astronomers feel overwhelmed. The Coma Cluster may have 10, 20, or 30,000 galaxies, and each of these galaxies has billions and billions of stars. If you were traveling at the speed of light, it would still take you more than 10 million years to cross this giant swarm of galaxies, and this is just one of many clusters of galaxies. If you lived on a planet on the outskirts of one of these galaxies, many of the other members of the cluster would be close enough that you would be able to see them in your night sky. Isn't that a beautiful thought? Really rich clusters, such as the Coma Cluster, usually have high concentrations of galaxies near the center. We can see giant elliptical galaxies in these central regions, but few, if any, spiral galaxies. The spirals that do exist generally occur on the outskirts of the clusters. We might say that ellipticals are highly social. They are often found in groups and very much enjoy hanging out with other ellipticals in crowded situations. It's precisely in such crowds that collisions are most likely, and as we discussed earlier, we think that most large ellipticals are built through mergers of smaller galaxies. Spirals, on the other hand, are a little more shy. They're more likely to be found in poor clusters or on the edges of rich clusters where collisions are less likely to disrupt the spiral arms or strip out the gas needed for continued star formation. We'll talk more about where our local group of galaxies exists relative to clusters, but first we're going to go through an astronomy basics box titled Gravitational Lensing. The box reads, as we saw earlier, space-time is more strongly curved in regions where the gravitational field is strong. Light passing very near a concentration of matter appears to follow a curved path. In the case of starlight passing close to the sun, we measure the position of a distant star to be slightly different from its true position. 
Now let's consider the case of light from a distant galaxy or quasar that passes near a concentration of matter, such as a cluster of galaxies, on its journey to our telescopes. According to general relativity, the light path may be bent in a variety of ways. As a result, we can observe distorted, even multiple images. Gravitational lenses can produce not only double images, as shown in figure 2817, but also multiple images, arcs or rings. The first gravitational lens discovered in 1979 showed two images of the same distant object. Eventually, astronomers used the Hubble Space Telescope to capture remarkable images of the effects of gravitational lenses. One example is shown in figure 2818. And if you haven't seen any figures showing gravitational lensing of distant galaxies, you should definitely Google it. It is amazing. General relativity predicts that light from a distant object may also be amplified by the lensing effect, thereby making otherwise invisible objects bright enough to detect. Ha! This is particularly useful for probing the earliest stages of galaxy formation, when the universe was young. Figure 2819 shows an example of a very distant, faint galaxy that we can study in detail only because its light path passes through a large concentration of massive galaxies, and we now see a brighter image of it. Note that visible mass in a galaxy is not the only possible gravitational lens. Dark matter can also reveal itself by producing a gravitational lens. Astronomers are using lensed images from all over the sky to learn more about where dark matter is located and how much of it exists. It may try and hide, but it's not that sneaky. All right, there is a link to Learning Box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, you can use the gravitational lensing simulator to explore how the distance and mass of a cluster of galaxies affects the offset of lensed images of a very distant galaxy. Instructions are available by clicking on Help. So where does our local group call home? Let's turn our attention to superclusters and voids. After astronomers discovered clusters of galaxies, they naturally wondered whether there were still larger structures in the universe. Do clusters of galaxies gather together? To answer this question, we must be able to map large parts of the universe in three dimensions. We must know not only the position of each galaxy on the sky, that's two dimensions, but also its distance from us, the third dimension. This means that we must be able to measure the redshift of each galaxy in our map. Taking a spectrum of each individual galaxy to do this is a much more time-consuming task than simply counting galaxies seen in different directions in the sky. If you remember, that's what Hubble did. Today, astronomers have found ways to get the spectra of many galaxies, sometimes hundreds or even thousands at a time, in the same field of view to cut down the time it takes to finish their three-dimensional maps. Larger telescopes are also able to measure the redshifts and therefore the distances of much more distant galaxies, and again, to do so much more quickly than previously possible. Another challenge astronomers faced in deciding how to go about constructing a map of the universe <laughs> is similar to that confronted by the first team of explorers in a huge uncharted territory on Earth. Since there's only one band of explorers and an enormous amount of land, they have to make choices about where to go first. One strategy might be to strike out in a straight line in order to get a sense of the terrain. They might, for example, cross some mostly empty prairies and then hit a dense forest. As they make their way through the forest, they learn how thick it is in the direction they're traveling, but not its width to their left or right. 
Then a river crosses their path, and as they wade across, they can measure its width but learn nothing about its length. Still, as they go on in their straight line, they begin to get some sense of what the landscape is like and can make at least part of a map. Other explorers striking out in other directions will someday help fill in the remaining parts of the map. Astronomers have traditionally had to make the same sort of choices. We cannot explore the universe in every direction to infinite depth or sensitivity. There are far too many galaxies and far too few telescopes to do the job. But we can pick a single direction or a small slice of the sky and start mapping the galaxies there. Margaret Geller, the late John Huckra, and their students at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics pioneered this technique, and several other groups have extended their work to cover larger volumes of space. We've reached a Voyagers in Astronomy box, and it's on Margaret Geller. The title is Margaret Geller, the Cosmic Surveyor. Born in 1947, Margaret Geller is the daughter of a chemist who encouraged her interest in science and helped her visualize the three-dimensional structure of molecules as a child. It was a skill that would later come in very handy for visualizing the three-dimensional structure of the universe. She remembers being bored in elementary school, but was encouraged to read on her own by her parents. Her recollections also include subtle messages from teachers that mathematics her strong early interest was not a field for girls, but she didn't allow herself to be deterred. Good for her. Geller obtained a BA in physics from the University of California at Berkeley and became the second woman to receive a PhD in physics from Princeton. There, while working with James Peebles, one of the world's leading cosmologists, she became interested in problems related to the large-scale universe, <laughs> large-scale structure of the universe. In 1980, she accepted a research position at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, one of the nation's most dynamic institutions for astronomy research. She saw that to make progress in understanding how galaxies and clusters are organized, a far more intensive series of surveys was required. Although it would not bear any fruit for many years, Geller and her collaborators began the long, arduous task of mapping the galaxies. Her team was fortunate enough to be given access to a telescope that could be dedicated to their project, the 60-inch reflector on Mount Hopkins near Tucson, Arizona, where they and their assistants took spectra to determine galaxy distances. To get a slice of the universe, they pointed their telescopes at a predetermined position in the sky and then let the rotation of the Earth bring new galaxies into their field of view. It's not cool. In this way, they measured the positions and redshifts of over 18,000 galaxies and made a wide range of interesting maps to display their data. Their surveys now include slices in both the northern and southern hemispheres. As news of her important work spread beyond the community of astronomers, Geller received the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship in 1990. These fellowships, popularly called Genius Awards, are designed to recognize truly creative work in a wide range of fields. Geller continues to have strong interest in visualization and has, with a filmmaker, made several award-winning videos explaining her work to non-scientists. One is titled, So Many Galaxies, So Little Time. She has appeared on a variety of national news and documentary programs, including the McNeil Leher NewsHour, <laughs> The Astronomers, and The Infinite Voyage. Energetic and outspoken, she has given talks on her work to many audiences around the country, and she works hard to find ways to explain the significance of her pioneering surveys to the public. A quote from Margaret Geller reads, It's exciting to discover something that nobody's seen before. 
to be one of the first three people ever to see that slice of the universe was sort of like being Columbus. Nobody expected such a striking pattern. We've reached a link to learning box, and as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, find out more about Geller and Hucker's work, including interviews with Geller, in this four-minute Nova video. You can also learn more about their conclusions and additional research that led to it. The Sloan Digital Sky Survey gives the largest universe mapping project to date, and a plot of the distribution of galaxies mapped by the Sloan Survey is shown in figure 2821. To the surprise of many astronomers, maps like the one in the figure showed that clusters of galaxies are not arranged uniformly throughout the universe, but they're found in huge filamentary superclusters that look like great arcs of ink blots splattered across a page. So where do we live? The local group, that's our home group, is part of a supercluster that we call the Virgo supercluster because it also includes the giant Virgo cluster of galaxies. The superclusters resemble an irregularly torn sheet of paper, like a pancake in shape. They can extend for hundreds of millions of light years in two dimensions, but are only about 10 to 20 million light years thick in the third dimension. Detailed studies of some of these structures shows that their masses are a few times 10 raised to the 16 times the mass of the sun, which is 10,000 times more massive than the Milky Way galaxy. We've reached another link to learning box, and I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It says, check out this animated visualization of the large scale structure from the Sloan survey. So what's between these superclusters? Well, here's where it gets really interesting. Separating the filaments and sheets in a supercluster are voids, which look like huge empty bubbles walled by the great arcs of galaxies. They have typical diameters of 150 million light years, with the clusters and galaxies concentrated along their walls. The whole arrangement of filaments and voids reminds us of a sponge, the inside of a honeycomb, or a hunk of Swiss cheese with very large holes. If you take a good slice or cross-section through any of these, you'll see something that looks roughly like figure 2821. I encourage you to take a look at the figure, or Google voids in the universe. Before these voids were discovered, most astronomers would probably have predicted that the regions between giant clusters of galaxies were filled with many small groups of galaxies, or even isolated individual galaxies. Careful searches within these voids have found few galaxies of any kind. Apparently, 90% of the galaxies occupy less than 10% of the volume of space. <laughs> that is, 90% of the galaxies occupy less than 10% of the entire universe. Even larger, more sensitive telescopes and surveys are currently being designed and built to peer further and further out into space and back in time. The new 50-meter large millimeter telescope in Mexico and the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, ALMA, in Chile can detect far-infrared and millimeter wave radiation from massive starbursting galaxies at redshifts and thereby distances of more than 90% of the way back to the Big Bang. These cannot be observed with visible light because their star formation regions are wrapped in thick clouds of dust. And what I'm particularly excited about is in 2021, the 6.5 meter diameter James Webb Space Telescope is scheduled to launch. It'll be the first new major visible light and near-infrared telescope in space since Hubble was launched more than 25 years ago. 
One of the major goals of this telescope is to observe directly the light of the first galaxies and even the first stars to shine, less than half a billion years after the Big Bang. At this point, if you've been thinking about our discussions of the expanding universe, you may be wondering what's expanding. We know that the galaxies and clusters of galaxies are held together by their gravity and do not expand as the universe does. However, the voids do grow larger and the filaments move farther apart as space stretches. We have reached a Making Connections box called Astronomy and Technology, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. It reads, in Edwin Hubble's day, spectra of galaxies had to be taken one at a time. The faint light of a distant galaxy gathered by a large telescope was put through a slit, and then a spectrometer was used to separate the colors and record the spectrum. This was a laborious process, ill-suited to the demands of making large-scale maps that require the redshifts of many thousands of galaxies. You can imagine. But new technology has come to the rescue of astronomers who seek three-dimensional maps of the universe of galaxies. One ambitious survey of the sky was produced using a special telescope, camera, and spectrograph atop the Sacramento Mountains of New Mexico. Called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, or SDSS for short, after the foundation that provided a large part of its funding, the program used a 2.5-meter telescope as a wide-angle astronomical camera. During a mapping program that lasted more than 10 years, astronomers used the SDSS's three charged coupled devices. We'll call those CCDs. They're sensitive electronic light detectors, similar to those used in many digital cameras and cell phones. Anyway, they used these CCDs to take images of over 500 million objects and spectra of over 3 million, covering more than a quarter of the celestial sphere. Like many large projects in modern science, the Sloan Survey involved scientists and engineers from many different institutions, ranging from universities to national laboratories. Every clear night for more than a decade, astronomers used the instrument to make images recording the position and brightness of celestial objects in long strips of the sky. The information in each strip was digitally recorded and preserved for future generations. When the seeing was only adequate, the telescope was used for taking spectra of galaxies and quasars, but it did so for up to 640 objects at a time. The key to success of the project was a series of optical fibers, thin tubes of flexible glass that can transmit light from a source to the CCD that records the spectrum. After taking images of part of the sky and identifying which objects are galaxies, project scientists drilled an aluminum plate with holes for attaching fibers at the location of each galaxy. The telescope was then pointed at the right section of the sky, and the fibers led the light of each galaxy to the spectrometer for individual recording. That's clever. About an hour was sufficient for each set of spectra, and the pre-drilled aluminum plates could be switched really quickly. Thus, it was possible to take as many as 5,000 spectra in one night, <laughs> provided that the weather was good enough, of course. The Galaxy Survey led to a more comprehensive map of the sky than has ever been possible, allowing astronomers to test their ideas about large-scale structure and the evolution of galaxies against an impressive array of real data. The information recorded by the Sloan Survey staggers the imagination. The data came in at 8 megabytes per second. This means 8 million individual numbers or characters every second. 
Over the course of the project, scientists recorded over 15 terabytes, or 15,000 billion bytes, which they estimate is comparable to the information contained in the Library of Congress. Organizing and sorting this volume of data and extracting the useful scientific results it contains is a formidable challenge, even in our information age. Like many other fields, astronomy has now entered an era of big data, requiring supercomputers and advanced computer algorithms to sift through those terabytes of data. This might be surprising, but one very successful solution to the challenge of dealing with such large data sets is to turn to citizens, to citizen science, or crowdsourcing, an approach the SDSS helped pioneer. The human eye is very good at recognizing subtle differences among shapes, such as between two different spiral galaxies, while computers often fail at such tasks. When Sloan Project astronomers wanted to catalog the shapes of some millions of galaxies in their new images, they launched the Galaxy Zoo Project. Volunteers around the world were given a short training course online and then were provided a few dozen galaxy images to classify by eye. The project was wildly successful, revol <laughs> resulting in over 40 million galaxy classifications by more than 100,000 volunteers and the discovery of whole new types of galaxies. That is fantastic. Okay, this section ends with a link to learning box. And as always, I encourage you to visit the link in the box. It reads, learn more about how you can be part of the project of classifying galaxies in this citizen science effort. The program is part of a whole series of citizen science projects that enable people in all walks of life to be part of the research that professional astronomers and scholars in a growing number of fields need help with. This is section 28.4, The Challenge of Dark Matter. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do four things. One, explain how astronomers knew that the solar system contains very little dark matter. Two, summarize the evidence for dark matter in most galaxies. Three, explain how we know the galaxy clusters are dominated by dark matter. And four, relate the presence of dark matter to the average mass to light ratio of huge volumes of space containing many galaxies. So far in this chapter, we have focused almost entirely on matter that radiates electromagnetic energy, stars, planets, gas, and dust. But as we've pointed out in several earlier chapters, it's now clear that galaxies contain large amounts of dark matter as well. There is much more dark matter, in fact, than matter that we can see, which means it would be foolish to ignore the effect of this unseen material in our theories about the structure of the universe. As many a ship captain in the polar seas found out a little too late, <laughs> the part of the iceberg visible above the ocean's surface is not necessarily the only part that we need to pay attention to. Dark matter turns out to be extremely important in determining the evolution of galaxies and of the universe as a whole. The idea that much of the universe is filled with dark matter may seem like a bizarre concept, but we can cite a historical example of dark matter much closer to home. In the mid-19th century, measurements showed that the planet Uranus did not follow exactly the orbit predicted from Newton's laws if one added up the gravitational forces of all the known objects in the solar system. Some people worry that Newton's laws may simply not work for so far out in the solar system, but the more straightforward interpretation was to attribute Uranus's orbital deviations to the gravitational effects of a new planet that had not yet been seen. Calculations showed us where that planet should be, and alas, we found Neptune very close to the predicted location. 
In the same way, astronomers now routinely determine the location and amount of dark matter in galaxies by measuring its gravitational effects on objects we see. And by measuring the way the galaxies move in clusters, scientists have discovered that dark matter is also distributed among galaxies in the clusters. Since the environment surrounding a galaxy is important in its development, dark matter must play a central role in galaxy evolution as well. Indeed, it appears that dark matter makes up most of the matter in the universe. But what is dark matter? What is it made of? We'll look next at the search for dark matter and the quest to determine its nature. Let's consider how close dark matter may be to you and I. Is there dark matter in our own solar system? Astronomers have examined the orbits of known planets and of spacecraft as they journey to the outer planets and beyond, and no deviations have been found from the orbits predicted on the basis of the theory of gravity and the masses of objects already discovered in our solar system. We therefore conclude that there is no evidence that there are large amounts of dark matter nearby. Astronomers have also looked for evidence of dark matter in the region of the Milky Way that lies within a few hundred light years of the Sun. In this vicinity, most of the stars are restricted to the thin disk of the Milky Way. It is possible to calculate how much mass the disk must contain in order to keep the stars from wandering far above or below it. The total matter that must be in the disk is less than twice the amount of the luminous matter. This means that no more than half of the mass in the region near the Sun can be dark matter. Now let's consider dark matter in and around galaxies. In contrast to our local neighborhood near the Sun and the solar system, there's ample evidence strongly suggesting that about 90% of the mass in the entire galaxy is in the form of a dark halo of matter. In other words, there is apparently about nine times more dark matter than visible matter. Astronomers have found some stars in the outer regions of the Milky Way beyond its bright disk, and these stars are revolving very rapidly around its center. The mass contained in all the stars and interstellar matter we can detect in the galaxy does not exert enough gravitational force to explain how those fast-moving stars in their orbits don't fly away. Only by having large amounts of unseen matter could the galaxy be holding on to those fast-moving outer stars. The same result is found for other spiral galaxies as well. The observed rotation of spiral galaxies like Andromeda is usually seen in plots known as rotation curves that show the velocity versus distance from the galaxy center. Such plots suggest that dark matter is found in a large halo surrounding the luminous parts of the galaxy. The radius of the halos around the Milky Way and the Andromeda galaxy may be as large as 300,000 light years, much larger than the visible size of these galaxies. What about dark matter in clusters of galaxies? Galaxies and clusters also move around. They orbit the cluster's center of mass. And it's not possible for us to follow a galaxy around its entire orbit because it typically takes about a billion years. It is possible, however, to measure the velocities with which galaxies in a cluster are moving and then estimate what the total mass in the cluster must be to keep the individual galaxies from flying out of the cluster. The observations indicate that the mass of the galaxies alone cannot keep the cluster together. Some other gravity must again be present. The total amount of dark matter in clusters exceeds by more than 10 times the luminous mass contained within the galaxies themselves, indicating that dark matter exists between galaxies as well as inside them. There's another approach we can take to measuring the amount of dark matter in clusters of galaxies. 
as we saw, the universe is expanding. But this expansion is not perfectly uniform, thanks to the interfering hand of gravity. <laughs> Suppose, for example, that a galaxy lies outside, but relatively close to a rich cluster of galaxies. The gravitational force of the cluster will tug on that neighboring galaxy and slow down the rate at which it moves away from the cluster due to the expansion of the universe. Consider the local group of galaxies lying on the outskirts of the Virgo supercluster. As a reminder, we live in the local group, so this one is particularly interesting to us. The mass concentrated at the center of the Virgo cluster exerts a gravitational force on the local group, and as a result, the local group is moving away from the center of the Virgo cluster, but at a velocity a few hundred kilometers per second slower than would be predicted by Hubble's law. By measuring such deviations from a smooth expansion, astronomers can estimate the total amount of mass contained in large clusters. There are two other very useful methods for determining the amount of dark matter in galaxy clusters, and both of them have produced results in general agreement with the method of measuring galaxy velocities. These are gravitational lensing and X-ray emission. Let's take a look at both of these. If you remember, Einstein, in his theory of general relativity, showed us that mass bends the surrounding fabric of space-time, and light, as it travels through space, follows those bends, and very massive objects can bend the trajectory of light significantly. And as a result, we can get something called gravitational lensing. We talked about that in the previous section. Visible galaxies are not the only possible gravitational lenses. Dark matter can also reveal its presence by producing this effect. Figure 28.24 shows a galaxy cluster that is acting like a gravitational lens. The streaks and arcs you see in the picture are lensed images of more distant galaxies. Again, if you don't have the figure in front of you, please Google gravitational lensing. It is fantastic. <laughs> gravitational lensing is well enough understood that astronomers can use the many ovals and arcs seen in this image to calculate detailed maps of how much matter there is in the cluster and how that mass is distributed. The result from studies of many such gravitational lens clusters shows that, like individual galaxies, galaxy clusters contain more than 10 times as much dark matter as luminous matter. The third method astronomers use to detect and measure dark matter in a galaxy and galaxy clusters is to image them in the light of X-rays. When the first sensitive X-ray telescopes were launched into orbit around Earth in the 1970s and trained on massive galaxy clusters, it was quickly discovered that the clusters emit copious X-ray radiation. This is intriguing because most stars do not emit much X-ray radiation, and neither does most of the gas or dust between the stars inside galaxies. So what could be emitting the X-rays seen from virtually all massive galaxy clusters? It turns out that just as galaxies have gas distributed between their stars, clusters of galaxies have gas distributed between their galaxies. The particles in these huge reservoirs of gas are not just sitting still. Rather, they are constantly moving, zooming around under the influence of the cluster's immense gravity like many planets around a giant sun. As they move and bump against each other, the gas heats up hotter and hotter until at temperatures as high as 100 million Kelvin, it shines brightly at X-ray wavelengths. The more mass the cluster has, the faster the motions, the hotter the gas, and the brighter the X-rays. Astronomers calculate that the mass present to induce those motions must be about 10 times the mass they see in the clusters, including all the galaxies and all the gas. Once again, we see that factor of about 10. 
and this is evidence that the galaxy clusters are seen to be dominated by dark matter. Now let's revisit the concept of mass-to-light ratio. We described how to use the mass-to-light ratio to characterize matter in galaxies or clusters of galaxies in a previous chapter. For systems containing mostly old stars, the mass-to-light ratio is typically 10 to 20, where mass and light are measured in units of the sun's mass and luminosity. A mass-to-light ratio of 100 or more, where there's significantly more matter than we would expect based on the luminosity, is a signal that a substantial amount of dark matter is present. Table 28.1 summarizes the results of measurements of mass-to-light ratios for various classes of objects. Very large mass-to-light ratios are found for systems of galaxy size and larger, indicating that dark matter is present in all of these types of objects. This is why we say dark matter apparently makes up most of the total mass of the universe. The clustering of galaxies can be used to derive the total amount of mass in a given region of space, while the visible radiation is a good indicator of where the luminous mass is. Studies show that dark matter and luminous matter are very closely associated. The dark matter halos do not extend beyond the luminous boundaries of the galaxies that they surround. However, where there are large clusters of galaxies, you'll also find large amounts of dark matter, and voids in the galaxy distribution are also voids in the distribution of dark matter. Okay, now we're coming to the question everybody wants to know. What is dark matter? How do we go about figuring out what dark matter consists of? The technique we might use depends on its composition. Let's consider the possibility that some of the dark matter is made up of normal particles like protons, neutrons, and electrons. Suppose these particles were assembled into black holes, brown dwarfs, or white dwarfs. If the black holes had no accretion disks, they would be invisible to us. White and brown dwarfs do emit some radiation, but they have such low luminosities that they can't be seen at distances greater than a few thousand light years. We can, however, look for such compact objects because they can act as gravitational lenses. Suppose the dark matter in the halo of the Milky Way were made up of black holes, brown dwarfs, and white dwarfs. You're going to like this. These objects have been whimsically dubbed machos. I'm not kidding. This stands for Massive Compact Halo Objects. So, if an invisible macho passes directly between a distant star and Earth, it acts as a gravitational lens, focusing the light from the distant star. And this causes the star to appear to brighten over a time interval of a few hours to several days before returning to its normal brightness. Since we can't predict when any given star might brighten in this way, we have to monitor huge numbers of stars to catch one in the act. There are not enough astronomers to keep monitoring so many stars, but today's automated telescopes and computer systems can do it for us. What have we found? Well, research teams making observations of millions of stars in the nearby galaxy called the Large Magellanic Cloud have reported several examples of the type of brightening expected if machos were present in the halo of the Milky Way. However, there are not enough machos in the halo of the Milky Way to account for the mass of the dark matter halo. This result, along with a variety of other experiments, leads us to conclude that the types of matter we're familiar with can make up only a tiny portion of the dark matter. Another possibility is that dark matter is composed of some new type of particle, one that researchers are now trying to detect in laboratories here on Earth. The kinds of dark matter particles that astronomers and physicists have proposed generally fall into two main categories, hot and cold dark matter. 
The terms hot and cold refer to the average velocities of the particles, analogous to how we might think of particles of air moving in your room right now. In a cold room, the air particles move more slowly on average than in a warm room. In the early universe, if dark matter particles easily moved fast and far compared to the lumps and bumps of ordinary matter that eventually became galaxies and larger structures, we call those particles hot dark matter. In that case, smaller lumps and bumps would be smeared out by the particle motions, meaning fewer small galaxies would get made. On the other hand, if the dark matter particles moved slowly and covered only small distances compared to the sizes of lumps in the early universe, we call that cold dark matter. Their slow speeds and energy would mean that even the smaller lumps of ordinary matter would survive to grow into small galaxies. By looking at when galaxies formed and how they evolve, we can use observations to distinguish between the two kinds of dark matter. So far, observations seem most consistent with models based on cold dark matter. Solving the dark matter problem is one of the biggest challenges facing astronomers. After all, we can hardly understand the evolution of galaxies and the long-term history of the universe without understanding what its most massive component is made of. For example, we need to know just what role dark matter played in starting the higher density seeds that led to the formation of galaxies. And since many galaxies have large halos made of dark matter, how does this affect their interactions with one another and the shapes and types of galaxies that their collisions create? Astronomers armed with various theories are working hard to produce models of galaxy structure and evolution that take dark matter into account in just the right way. Even though we don't know what dark matter is, we do have some clues about how it affected the formation of the very first galaxies. As we'll see in a later chapter, careful measurements of the microwave radiation left over from the Big Bang have allowed astronomers to set very tight limits on the actual sizes of those early seeds that led to the formation of the large galaxies that we see today in today's universe. Astronomers have also measured the relative numbers and distances between galaxies and clusters of different sizes in the universe today. So far, most of the evidence seems to weigh heavily in favor of cold, dark matter, and most current models of galaxy and large-scale structure formation use cold, dark matter as their main ingredient. Dark matter is a mysterious substance that exerts gravity and outweighs all the known stars and galaxies in the universe, but doesn't emit or absorb any kind of radiation. <laughs> As if the presence of dark matter were not enough, there is an even more baffling and equally important constituent of the universe that has only recently been discovered. We've called that dark energy, in parallel with dark matter. We'll come back to this a little bit later and explore its effects on the evolution of the universe, but for now we can complete our inventory of the contents of the universe by noting that it appears that the entire universe contains some mysterious energy that pushes space-time apart, taking galaxies and the larger structures made of galaxies along with it. Observations show that dark energy becomes more and more important relative to gravity as the universe ages, and as a result, the expansion of the universe is accelerating, and this acceleration seems to be happening mostly since the universe was about half its current age. What we see when we peer out into the universe, the light from trillions of stars and hundreds of billions of galaxies wrapped in intricate veils of gas and dust, is therefore actually only a sprinkling of the icing on top of the cake. As we'll see later, when we look outside galaxies and clusters of galaxies at the universe as a whole, astronomers find that for every gram of luminous normal matter, such as protons, neutrons, and electrons in the atoms in our universe, 
there are about four grams of non-luminous normal matter, mainly intergalactic hydrogen and helium. There are about 27 grams of dark matter, and the energy equivalent, remember Einstein's famous E equals mc squared, of about 68 grams of dark energy. Dark matter, and as we'll see, even more so, dark energy, are dramatic demonstrations of what we have tried to emphasize throughout this book. Science is always a progress report, and we often encounter areas where we have more questions than answers. One cool thing about science is that you always are in the middle of a detective novel. <laughs> Let's put together all of these clues to trace the life history of galaxies and large-scale structure of the universe. What follows is the current consensus, but research in this field is moving rapidly, and some of these ideas will probably be modified as new observations are made. This is section 28.5, the formation and evolution of galaxies and structure in the universe. And by the end of this section, you should be able to do two things. One, summarize the main theories attempting to explain how individual galaxies formed. And two, explain how tiny seeds of dark matter in the early universe grew by gravitational attraction over billions of years into the largest structures observed in the universe. Those structures are galaxy clusters and superclusters, filaments, and voids. As with most branches of natural science, astronomers and cosmologists always want to know the answer to the question, how did it get that way? What made galaxies and galaxy clusters, superclusters, voids, and filaments look the way they do? The existence of such large filaments of galaxies and voids is an interesting puzzle because we have evidence that the universe was extremely smooth even a few hundred thousand years after forming. The challenge for theoreticians is to understand how a nearly featureless universe changed into the complex and lumpy one that we see today. Armed with our observations and current understanding of galaxy evolution over cosmic time, dark matter, and large-scale structure, we are now prepared to try to answer that question on some of the largest possible scales in the universe. As we'll see, the short answer to how the universe got this way is <laughs> dark matter plus gravity plus time. How galaxies form and grow. We've already seen that galaxies were more numerous, but smaller, bluer, and clumpier in the distant past than they are today, and that galaxy mergers play a significant role in their evolution. At the same time, we have observed quasars and galaxies that emitted their light when the universe was less than a billion years old, so we know that large condensations of matter had begun to form at least that early. We also saw that many quasars are found in the centers of elliptical galaxies. This means that some of the first large concentrations of matter must have evolved into the elliptical galaxies that we see in today's universe. It seems likely that the supermassive black holes in the centers of galaxies and the spherical distribution of ordinary matter around them formed at the same time and through the related physical processes. Dramatic confirmation of that picture arrived only in the last decade, when astronomers discovered a curious empirical relationship. The more massive a galaxy is, the more massive its central black hole is. Somehow, the black hole and the galaxy know enough about each other to match their growth rates. There have been two main types of galaxy formation models to explain all of those observations. The first asserts that massive elliptical galaxies formed in a single rapid collapse of gas and dark matter, during which virtually all the gas was turned quickly into stars. Afterward, the galaxies changed only slowly as the stars evolved. 
This is what astronomers call a top-down scenario. The second model suggests that today's giant ellipticals were formed mostly through mergers of small galaxies that had already converted at least some of their gas into stars, a bottom-up scenario. In other words, astronomers have debated whether giant ellipticals formed most of their stars in the large galaxy that we see today, or in separate small galaxies that subsequently merged. Since we see some luminous quasars from when the universe was less than a billion years old, it's likely that at least some giant ellipticals began their evolution very early through the collapse of a single cloud. However, the best evidence also seems to show that mature giant ellipticals, like the ones we see nearby, were rare before the universe was about 6 billion years old, and that they are much more common today than they were when the universe was young. Observations also indicate that most of the gas in elliptical galaxies was converted to stars by the time the universe was about 3 billion years old. So it appears that elliptical galaxies have not formed many new stars since then. They are often said to be red and dead. That is, they mostly contain old, cool, red stars, and there is little or no new star formation going on. These observations, when considered together, suggest that giant elliptical galaxies that we see nearby formed from a combination of both top-down and bottom-up mechanisms, with the most massive galaxies forming in the densest clusters where both processes happened very early and very quickly in the history of the universe. The situation with spiral galaxies is apparently very different. The bulges of these galaxies formed early, like the elliptical galaxies. However, the disks formed later. Remember that stars in the disk of the Milky Way are younger than stars in the bulge in the halo, and still contain a lot of gas and dust. However, the rate of star formation in spirals today is about 10 times lower than it was 8 billion years ago. The number of stars being formed drops as the gas is used up, so spirals seem to form mostly bottom-up, but over a longer time than ellipticals and in a more complex way, with at least two distinct phases. Hubble originally thought that elliptical galaxies were young and would eventually turn into spirals, an idea we now know is not true. <laughs> in fact, as we saw above, it's more likely the other way around. Two spirals that crash into each other under their mutual gravity can turn into an elliptical. Despite these advances in our understanding of how galaxies form and evolve, many questions remain. For example, it's even possible, given current evidence, that spiral galaxies could lose their spiral arms and disks in a merger event, making them look more like elliptical or irregular galaxies, and then regain the disk and arms later if enough gas remains available. The story of how galaxies assume their final shapes is still being written as we learn more about galaxies and their environment. What about galaxy clusters, and galaxy superclusters, and voids, and filaments? If individual galaxies seem to grow mostly by assembling smaller pieces together gravitationally over cosmic time, what about these things? How do we explain the large-scale maps that show galaxies distributed on the walls of huge sponge or bubble-like structures spanning hundreds of millions of light years? It seems crazy, right? We found increasing evidence for concentrations, filaments, clusters, and superclusters of galaxies when the universe was less than 3 billion years old. This means that large concentrations of galaxies had already come together when the universe was less than a quarter as old as it is now. Almost all the currently favored models of how large-scale structure formed in the universe tell a story similar to that for individual galaxies. 
tiny dark matter seeds in the hot cosmic soup after the Big Bang grew by gravity into larger and larger structures as cosmic time ticked on. The final models we construct will need to be able to explain the size, shape, age, number, and spatial distribution of galaxies, clusters, and filaments, not only today, but also far back in time. Therefore, astronomers are working hard to measure and then to model those features of large-scale structures as accurately as possible. So far, a mixture of 5% normal atoms, 27% cold dark matter, and 68% dark energy seems to be the best way to explain all the evidence currently available. Scientists even have a model to explain how a nearly uniform hot soup of particles and energy at the beginning of time acquired the Swiss cheese-like structure that we now see on the largest scales. When the universe was only a few hundred thousand years old, everything was at a temperature of a few thousand degrees. Theorists suggest that at that early time, all the hot gas was vibrating, much as sound waves vibrate the air of a nightclub <laughs> with an especially loud band. This vibrating could have concentrated matter into high-density peaks and created emptier spaces between them. When the universe cooled, the concentrations of matter were frozen in, and galaxies ultimately formed the matter in those high-density regions. Though it's not exactly representative of what's being discussed here, I suggest that you Google something called Klondi plates. The spelling is C-H-L-A-N-D-I, and if nothing else, they're just a lot of fun. So is there a big picture? <laughs> so what's the big picture? So let's take a look at the big picture. To finish this chapter, let's put all these dice. So let's took a So let's take a look at the big picture. To finish this chapter, let's put all these eyes Ah. So let's take a look at the big picture. To finish this chapter, let's put all these ideas together to tell a coherent story of how the universe came to look the way it does. Initially, as we said, the distribution of matter, both luminous... So let's look at the big picture. So let's look at the big picture. So let's look at the big picture. To finish this chapter, let's put all these ideas together to tell a coherent story of how the universe came to look the way it does. <laughs> at least we think. So let's try to look at the big picture. Let's try to put all these ideas together to tell a coherent story of how the universe came to look the way it does. Initially, the distribution of matter, both luminous and dark, was nearly, but not quite exactly, smooth and uniform. That not quite is the key to everything. Here and there were lumps where density of matter, both luminous and dark, was ever so slightly higher than average. Initially, each individual lump expanded because the whole universe was expanding. However, as the universe continued to expand, the regions of higher density acquired still more mass because they exerted a slightly larger than average gravitational force on the surrounding material. If the inward pull of gravity was high enough, the denser individual regions ultimately stopped expanding. They then began to collapse into irregularly shaped blobs. <laughs> That's the technical term astronomers use. In many regions, the collapse was more rapid in one direction, so the concentrations of matter were not spherical but came to resemble something like giant clumps, pancakes, and rope-like filaments, each much larger than individual galaxies. 
These elongated clumps existed throughout the universe, oriented in different directions and collapsing at different rates. The clumps provide the framework for the large-scale filamentary and bubble-like structures that we see preserved in the universe today. The universe then proceeded to build itself from the bottom up. Within the clumps, smaller structures formed first, then merged in to build larger ones, like Lego pieces being put together one by one to create a giant Lego metropolis. The first dense concentrations of matter that collapsed were the size of small dwarf galaxies, or globular clusters, which helps explain why globular clusters are the oldest things in the Milky Way and most other galaxies. These fragments then gradually assembled to build galaxies, galaxy clusters, and ultimately superclusters of galaxies. According to this picture, small galaxies and large star clusters first formed when the universe was about 2% of its current age, and they formed in the highest density regions of all, the filaments and nodes where the pancakes intersect. <laughs> Some stars may have formed even before the star clusters and galaxies came into existence. Some galaxy-galaxy collisions triggered massive bursts of star formation, and some of these led to the formation of black holes. In that rich, crowded environment, black holes found constant food and grew in mass. The development of massive black holes then triggered quasars and other active galactic nuclei whose powerful outflows of energy and matter shut off star formation in their host galaxies. Apparently, there was a lot going on in the early universe. Clusters of galaxies, then formed as individual galaxies congregated, drawn together by their mutual gravitational attraction. First, a few galaxies came together to form groups, much like our own local group. Then the groups began combining to form clusters, and eventually superclusters. This model predicts that clusters and superclusters should still be in the process of gathering together, and observations do in fact suggest that clusters are still gathering up their flocks of galaxies and collecting more gas as it flows in along the filaments. In some instances, we even see entire clusters of galaxies merging together. Most giant elliptical galaxies formed through the collision and merger of many smaller fragments. Some spiral galaxies may have formed in relatively isolated regions from a single cloud of gas that collapsed to make a flattened disk, but others acquired additional stars, gas, and dark matter through collisions, and the stars acquired through these collisions now populate their halos and bulges. Our Milky Way is not done. It's still capturing small galaxies and adding them to its halo, and probably also pulling fresh gas from these galaxies into its disk. And we know eventually the Milky Way will merge with the Andromeda galaxy, and we'll probably become, together, a large elliptical galaxy. I wish I could see that result, don't you? We've reached the summary of Chapter 28. 28.1 Observations of Distant Galaxies When we look at distant galaxies, we're looking back in time. We have now seen galaxies as they were when the universe was about 500 million years old only about 4% as old as it is now. The universe now is 13.8 billion years old. The color of a galaxy is an indicator of the age of the stars that populate it. Blue galaxies must contain a lot of hot, massive young stars. Galaxies that contain only old stars tend to be yellowish-red. The first generation of stars formed when the universe was only a few hundred million years old. Galaxies observed when the universe was only a few billion years old tend to be smaller than today's galaxies, to have more irregular shapes, and to have more rapid star formation than galaxies we see nearby in today's universe.
This shows that the smaller galaxy fragments assembled themselves into the larger galaxies that we see today. 28.2. Galaxy mergers and active galactic nuclei. When galaxies of comparable size collide and coalesce, we call it a merger. <laughs> but when a small galaxy is swallowed by a much larger one, <laughs> we use the term galactic cannibalism. <laughs> Why not? Collisions play an important role in the evolution of galaxies. If the collision involves at least one galaxy rich in interstellar matter, the resulting compression of the gas will result in a burst of star formation, leading to a starburst galaxy. Mergers were much more common when the universe was young, and many of the most distant galaxies that we see are starburst galaxies that are involved in collisions. Active galactic nuclei powered by supermassive black holes in the center of most galaxies can have major effects on the host galaxy, including shutting off star formation. 28.3. The distribution of galaxies in space. Counts of galaxies in various directions establish that the universe on the large scale is homogeneous and isotropic. That is, it's the same everywhere, and it's the same in all directions, apart from the evolutionary changes with time. The sameness of the universe everywhere is referred to as the cosmological principle. Galaxies are grouped together in clusters. The Milky Way galaxy is a member of the local group, which contains at least 54 member galaxies. Rich clusters, such as the Virgo and Coma, contain thousands or tens of thousands of galaxies. Galaxy clusters often group together with other clusters to form large-scale structures called superclusters, which can extend over distances of several hundred million light-years. Clusters and superclusters are found in the filamentary structures that are huge but fill up only a fraction of space. Most of space consists of large voids between superclusters, with nearly all galaxies confined to less than 10% of the total volume. 28.4, the challenge of dark matter. Stars move much faster in their orbits around the centers of their galaxies, and galaxies around their centers of galaxy clusters than they should, according to gravity that's associated with all the luminous matter of stars, gas, and dust. This discrepancy implies that galaxies and galaxy clusters are dominated by dark matter rather than normal luminous matter. Gravitational lensing and X-ray radiation from massive galaxy clusters confirm the presence of dark matter. Galaxies and clusters of galaxies contain about 10 times more dark matter than luminous matter, while some of the dark matter may be made up of ordinary matter like protons, neutrons, and electrons, perhaps in the form of very faint stars or black holes. Most of it probably consists of some totally new type of particle not detected on Earth. Observations of gravitational lensing effects on distant objects have been used to look in the outer region of our galaxy for any dark matter in the form of compact dim stars or star remnants, but not enough such objects have been found to account for all the dark matter. It's crazy out there. <laughs> 28.5, the formation and evolution of galaxies and structure in the universe. Initially, luminous and dark matter in the universe was distributed almost, but not quite uniformly. The challenge for galaxy formation theories is to show how this <laughs> not quite smooth distribution of matter developed the structures, the galaxy and galaxy clusters that we see today. It's likely that the filamentary distribution of galaxies and voids was built in near the beginning, before stars and galaxies began to form. The first condensations of matter 
were about the mass of a large star cluster or a small galaxy. These smaller structures then merged over cosmic time to form large galaxies, clusters of galaxies, and superclusters of galaxies. Superclusters today are still gathering up more galaxies, gas, and dark matter. And spiral galaxies, like ours, the Milky Way, are still acquiring material by capturing small galaxies nearby. We have reached the end of the reading for chapter 28, and I hope it's been helpful. In the next chapter, we're going to turn our attention to that thing called the Big Bang. (laughs) I hope you're looking forward to it, because I certainly am. Talk to you soon.